Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So it's the holiday season. It's time for dinner parties and plus ones and mistletoe and eggnog. And if you're the former president, Nazis, white supremacists and election deniers. It's always a really fun time of the year. Are you planning any Nazi dinner parties, Sugi? Are you going to any? Oh my goodness, be still my heart. The Florida Nazi dinner parties of yesteryear, thinking of them always makes me so nostalgic. Do you think they play Bing Crosby? That is not nice to say about Bing Crosby. I don't think Bing Crosby, he would <laughs> withdraw his rights, just like all the other <laughs> artists do, Trump uses. Sorry, Bing. Um, but if they don't play Bing Crosby at Florida Nazi dinners, I know what they do play. As I lay me down to sleep, I hear Yes, obviously the news pick for our episode today is Donald Trump's by now infamous infamous dinner with Kanye West, now known as Ye, and his Nazi sympathizing and apparently presidential campaign consulting Nick Fuentes. Um, this dinner happened on November 22nd, right before Thanksgiving, so almost by now a, a month ago. Um, everyone's heard about it, but we thought that fiction, the Fiction Nonfiction podcast had a unique role here, something that we could shed some light on that you're not going to get from CNN, MSNBC, or God forbid, Fox. Oh, come on, Whitney. Fox does not have any light to shed anywhere, but never mind. The light we have to shed is that, thank the Lord, dinner parties, terrible and great, have been a staple of great literature from time immemorial. And so in the spirit of Trump's, and I will never say that phrase again, in the spirit of Trump's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad dinner party, we want to give you literature's most famous and infamous dinner parties, fiction, nonfiction style. So that if you are tired of hearing about Trump's dumb dinner parties, you can go read about these dinner parties instead. Exactly. And to help us along this journey, we have the novelist Michael Knight with us. Michael is the author of three novels, Divining Rod, The Typist, and At Briarwood School for Girls, three collections of short stories, Dogfight and Other Stories, Good Night, Nobody, and Evening Land, and a book of novellas, The Holiday Season. His most recent collection, Evening Land, was selected as an editor's choice pick by the New York Times and a Southern Book of the Year by Southern Living Magazine. His 2010 novel, The Typist, was a best book of the year uh, from the Huffington Post, as well as the Kansas City Star, among other places, and was on Oprah's summer reading list in 2011. 
His short stories have appeared in magazines and journals like The New Yorker, Oxford American, Paris Review, Plowshares, Sewanee Review, and The Southern Review. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. It's good to see you, my friend. We have known each other for a long time, and I've had been out to dinner with you and your wife in Knoxville. Say hello to her for me. I will indeed. And you've been here to Kansas City to read, which would have involved celebrations of some kind, although I can't remember exactly what it was. Um, I think of you as an ideal dinner companion. What characteristics do you think make an ideal dinner companion? Uh, well, you know, uh, this, the theme, the, the podcast is fiction, nonfiction. The, what popped straight into my head was you need good storytellers at a dinner party, right? Um, but you don't want spotlight hogs. You don't want somebody who's going to hog up all the time. So you need to mix those storytellers with, you know, uh, guests who are inquisitive, who are curious, who are going to ask questions and let, let their dinner companions shine a little bit too. What about y'all? What do you think? Well, I feel like that's a really Southern answer to first say that we want a good storyteller at the dinner table because I do think (laughs) that's what a Southern dinner party would be like. A Midwestern dinner party is like, we want them to be dressed properly and to not make too much noise. Um, But (laughs) Oh no, the best part of of a dinner party, I think of this, this is true of dinners I've had with you and and my favorite dinners everywhere is um, when you've had just enough lubrication that people tart, start telling all their good stories, you know, the stories that they might not tell in polite company. Those are those are the guests that you want, you know. Well, that's what I want, but that is not what people that I was brought up to want. That's why. That's why. That's why I became so you, friends with you, you, Michael. So, what you guys want are the guests who transition smoothly from being polite company to slightly impolite company. Probably for sure. You don't want too impolite, though, right? Then, then you get then you get to where someone says something that offends someone, and then everything you know comes apart at the seams. Do you have an example of that, Michael? <laughs> I think I've told you this story before, but uh, I'm I, teeing you up. Uh, yeah, I know I, it's a softball. Uh, so this is my children are, 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 are almost college age now. One's in college, and one is a senior in high school. But when they were much younger, say my oldest daughter was probably eight or nine, so that my youngest would have been four or five. We were having Christmas dinner at my in-law's house, and my mo- mother-in-law, who's a fantastic host, hostess, like a great cook, you know, she, she's probably, Whitney Moore, uh, like the dinner party, the parties that you're talking about. She doesn't want obnoxious people there like me. And she was only being polite, and she said, so Michael, you know, we hope you feel at home here. We hope, um, you know, that this, this uh, dinner party is you know, everything you imagine a Christmas dinner should be. And, um, you know, is there anything that you're missing about Christmas in Alabama? And I said, just being a smart ass, thinking that no one would take me seriously. Um, and, you know, riffing on the old Seinfeld joke, I said, well, you know, uh, in my family, traditionally after a Christmas dinner, we all turn to the person on our left and tell them the ways in which they've disappointed us throughout the year. We do an airing of the grievances. And my mother-in-law, without missing a beat, God bless her, turned to my eight-year-old daughter and said, Mary, I was very disappointed that you didn't write me a thank you card when I sent you that gift for your birthday. <laughs> and immediately, the whole, and immediately, everyone was turning to everyone. My daughter turned to her grandfather and said, you're wearing a dumb shirt. Like the whole thing devolved in an instant, which was part of the fun. That's what Michael's like to have to dinner. <laughs> Amazing. This also makes me think of the thing you said before about finding the person who 
tells the good stories but doesn't hog the spotlight. Have either of you seen that Curb Your Enthusiasm episode where they're talking about the dinner guest who sits in the middle? No, I have Mm-mm. not. Because right, there's say? also like there's it's this episode that for some reason I feel like I've seen scraps of it on planes and just it's it surface it's this episode where there are dinner parties and where one dinner party kind of goes haywire because the wrong people are sitting in the middle and they're just they're they're not doing the work that the person in the middle needs to do. So like the hostess gets like pissed off and like moves everyone around and people get offended. I'm a middler. I could be a middler. And um, that's the kind of like the person who's able to be the conversational fulcrum, who's able to talk to the person on the left and like tell them how they disappointed them, but is also not ignoring the person on the right. right. Is like gently massaging their ego in some way. I mean, dinner parties are interesting because they're complicated. There is that kind of like the subtle dance of who's going to sit with whom, who needs to be kept separate from whom. And, and those aren't the only variables. There's the food, the atmosphere, the music. So when you're planning a dinner party, when you're the, when you're the host, when you've got your mother-in-law coming to your place, what do you, what do you do? Um, well, you know, I think one of the gr- things about a great dinner party is that it has stages. It's not all one thing. You're not just sitting down to dinner for a long time. So you start um, maybe in one part of the house with a drink, and then you relocate to another part of the house with a you know with a with a cocktail and a um, and some appetizers, and then you finally settle at the table. Like if like there's motion, you know what I mean. There's progress. There's a narrative like to your that. dinner party. You know. Um, and that to me is what makes it, what makes a, I'm, I'm taking this question quite seriously. I could, no, I could this is a real question. It, but, I like that. But yeah, I, it's a real question. But I, I think, think that's true that like there's a, there it has a flow, a narrative that there are, if you're just expecting the party to find its own way, then it might, it might be fun, but it also might like fall apart. Um, there might, you might not find that conversational fulcrum, that middler, you know? Um, yeah, I think it ought to have stages. This has a kind of narrative a party does. I don't know. I, I would wonder I have this problem, not a problem. When I'm, at, when I'm at parties, I am always, I'm never really participating in the party, particularly if it's my party. I'm watching right. what everyone else is doing at the party and making sure that all those things are happening. Now, some people do that and some people just monofocus at parties and they just like, as soon as that conversation starts with whoever it is, you could set off a bomb behind them. They would not, they just right. talking right to that person until they get shifted, right? And so it's your job is to shift them if they need to be shifted or any. <laughs> so are you guys monofocused people or are you like always watching the party when the party's happening? Sugi, are you Sugi, monofocused? I actually want to know. I know the answer from Michael because I think that he watches everybody, but I want to know how you would characterize yourself. I think, um, you know, as you say, there's a distinction between when you're the host and when you're a guest. I do and this whether I'm the ghost guest, like a... uh, guest or the host. It's a problem. <laughs> um. I think I'm probably as a host, I discovered that this is cultural relatively late. Um, There are some, my family is, um, Michael, for context, my family is Tamil and Sri Lankan. And there are some Sri Lankan women who, when they are hosting a party, will actually not eat. Wow. Um, And they'll just sort of be like, oh, I already ate or I'll eat later. Um, And they're just sort of spending all of their energy kind of attending to guests. And that can actually make guests really anxious, um, depending on where the guests are from. So... I think um, I've had to kind of my own instinct to kind of like monitor everyone. That's yeah, I'm probably I'm probably the the watcher, um, certainly as a host. And I think maybe even a little bit as a guest to kind of be like, is there someone who's kind of sitting in the corner, maybe like feeling a little awkward or by themselves? Or am I feeling awkward by myself? And how might I ease myself out of that situation? So I don't know the answer for Michael. So I want to hear that. Well, answer. Let me ask you. Let me ask you a question real, real quick, because I think uh, so. Are you Whitney and Sugi as a host? 
able to have fun at your own party or is it, you know, is it work to keep, make sure everybody else is having fun? I think it requires like almost everything else, like class, like writing in order to have the best time. I have to do a lot of prep. Yeah. Um, and so then if I can, if I have the time to do the prep, it's possible to have the fun. Um, and also if I'm able to let go of certain perfectionist ideas about like, I don't know how orderly the appetizers appear and like, you know, does the sauce correct? My partner and I are both like pretty obsessed with food and like want the food to be perfect. Um, so I think, I think, you know, if the prep, if the prep is there, then I can, then I can have fun. I I can chill, but like, that's pretty it's pretty unusual. Do, do you have like uh, like a signature dish, like something that you know you can make that that will please everyone, but is not that so difficult that you have to bend over backward to make it great? See how Michael's being the host of this party now to make sure that everyone has things to say. <laughs> I was just noticing that. Michael, what is your signature dish? Um, well, I will say this. My wife is a much better cook than I am. So usually she is cooking, though she is not a host who can have fun at her own party. You know what I mean? She is, she's so determined uh, for the food to come out right that she, I don't think she has any fun. So if we have people over, if we have a dinner party, uh, usually I cook. And my go-to thing to cook is I'll do a shrimp oil. It's easy. Um, a lot of people who I'm cooking it for, you know, this is like a Gulf Coast, low country Alabama dish. Um, and so a lot of people who are coming over haven't had it before. Like it feels kind of exotic and Southern to them. Um, and it's also easy. It's simple. It's easy. The flavors are really clean. Um, so I will do a shrimp oil as my go-to signature dinner party dish. I will be right can over. You, <laughs> so but can you have fun at your um, own party there are, or not? What's your, what I can have, have, I can, okay. yes, I definitely you can, can have forget fun at my own party. Host. Absolutely. You have that, you have a cocktail right before everybody gets there. You get, you know, you smooth it, smooth the, you know, the surface of everything. And, um, yeah. And also I, I don't like, I try not to cook complicated things like Sugi. It sounds like y'all are preparing super complicated dishes. Um, I'll, you know, if I do a shrimp oil, it doesn't, it takes 20 minutes of prep and then, then it's easy and the, and the food's good. You know, um, I try not to cook complicated things. I just think the one, yeah, okay, I go think... ahead, Sugi. And then I have something. No, no, no. What do you, I want to know what you, I'm just going to say that the first thing I do is make sure we're not going to run out of alcohol. That is the number one thing we could have just peanuts for dinner, but we just cannot run out of wine and whatever else people are drinking. Um, I will drink and that is necessary for me to be social. Um, and, but I don't really, I have fun if other people are having fun. And then I do have this experience. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. The minute after the party's over, like I just hosted a big, this writers for readers thing that that Sugi came to and, and um, it's a yeah it's a that's a 350 person event right the first thing that I think after it's all over is I think of the one thing that I fucked up <laughs> and I just obsess I on it. oh I screwed this. up this <laughs> one thing even if everything else went right it's like my way of letting go of the party and saying goodbye to it is like admitting that it's over is for me to 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 put monofocus on one screw up that I had and feel bad and then that's the end. I thought that that was a great party. I have this one thing that I think I did wrong. What did you do wrong? Yeah, what did you? What, what, <laughs> I forgot to introduce one guy that I should have remembered to introduce. Um, and I had to get a bad introduction. It's totally, you know, it's stupid. He didn't care, but it's just like it's a thing that I know that I do now. You know, so are you? Do you have regrets after parties or no? Is that just me? Well, now that you've said it, I'm thinking of all kinds of things that I <laughs> that I regret. Like, and, and in fact, the very same thing. Like, I, we just had a bunch of writers here for a thing, and. Um, you know, it was my job to host and I, and I tried to give a toast before and I, it, it was fine. But 
there was one person that I didn't single out that I should have singled out. And, you know, it nagged me all night. I was tossing and turning in bed afterward. Um, yes. All right. So to paraphrase Tolstoy, all happy dinner parties are alike. Each unhappy dinner party is unhappy in its own way. We all, we all know that unhappy dinner parties make for better fiction than happy ones. So, Michael, in this holiday season, we wondered if you would read to us from your 2007 novella, The Holiday Season, about a dinner party with a certain Madame Langlois. Oh, Langlois. There's an L in there. I always forget. It's very hard to say. All right. Langlois. Um, so, sure. Um, so, this dinner party uh, features three characters. Jeff Posey, who is... Uh, his wife has recently passed away. He's also recently retired. He's kind of a small time Alabama politician who's recently retired. So he's a sort of at emotional loose ends and you know, loose ends in his life. Um, he's having dinner with his youngest son, Frank, who's a failed actor. Um, I guess the expression for people like Frank Posey is he's sort of, he's been a child who's slow to launch. Um, he's also the narrator of this section. And then the, the their neighbor, uh, Jeff's neighbor, Madame Langlois, who has romantic designs on the dad, on Jeff Posey, um, and has insinuated herself into their Thanksgiving by offering to come over to their house and cook dinner for the Posey men. So I'm gonna just start from kind of the top of that scene. Madame Langlois was right on time. It took the three of us two trips to haul all that food in from her car, turkey on a silver platter, sweet potatoes, stuffing, bread, some kind of fish and mushroom casserole in a Pyrex dish, salad in a huge plastic bowl. She had made both pumpkin and pecan pie. She insisted that Dad and I take our places at the table while she did the final preparations. From the kitchen, Madame Langlois said, by the way, this is my French accent. This is my rube from Alabama French accent. From the kitchen, Madame Langlois said, I hope you do not mind the casserole, it is French. I know this is your holiday, but I love to see my American friends enjoy French food. She said eat instead of it. Her accent seemed somehow even thicker than before. I waited a second, gave my father a chance to reply. He didn't bother. Before I could speak, Madame Langlois was running on again. I had the most wonderful day in the kitchen. It gives me such a pleasure to cook for men with their appetites. Z, she said, gives. I cut a look at my father, tried with an eyebrow thing and a complicated smile to let him know that I was in on the joke. Sure, she was ridiculous, but also gratified that he and I had been able to make her happy in this small way. He looked away, sipped at the Sauvignon Blanc she poured. He screwed his face up at the taste and went back to scotch instead. Your mother, he said, she used to drink Merlot with everything, red meat, white meat, it didn't matter. She knew what she liked. She'd put a single ice cube in. She preferred it just a little chilled and watered down. An egg timer dinged, and I heard a tiny continental-sounding exclamation from Madame Langlois. Dad went on. She never liked a turkey at Thanksgiving. You remember? Too cliche. We'd do beef tender instead. She wasn't much of a cook, but it always turned out nice. He was talking like Mom had been gone for decades, like he was worried I'd forgotten her. His voice was way too loud. There was some banging and rustling in the kitchen. A minute later, Madame Langlois swung into the room bearing the turkey platter, which she placed on a trivet beside my father. She lifted the lid with a flourish. It was a beautiful bird. You will carve for us, Jeff, no? My father grunted his assent, and Madame Langlois shuttled in a few more platters, then took her seat across from me. She looked a little wilted. We watched Dad hack at the turkey. So, she said, tell me, Frank, 
You have been to France? I bobbed my head. After college, I did the backpack thing. How long were you in my country? Let's see. Paris for about a week, I said, then the South, Nice and Antibes, maybe two weeks altogether. Madame Langlois served herself some casserole, started the dish on its round. You did not visit the Loire Valley? Afraid not. I took some, passed the casserole to my father and waited for Madame Langlois to finish with the salad. She made a little sucking sound with her tongue. Then you did not see France. The Loire Valley is the very, how you say, the very soul of the country. My father and his father before him and on and on like so, they had a vineyard near Lyon. Right then, my father slapped the serving spoon into the casserole dish hard enough to splatter his tie and the lenses of his glasses. That's it, he said. I can't listen to this. He glared at us, didn't seem to notice the dollop of cream sauce obscuring his left eye. This woman, he said, bolting to his feet and aiming a finger like a TV lawyer, she's from North goddamn Carolina. Her father may have run a vineyard, but what he made was third-rate domestic cabernet. Madame Langlois' lips were pressed into a thin white line. My father addressed her directly. You've been in this country almost 50 years. His voice leapt up in volume at the end of the sentence. It's absurd. You're more American than Frank. I wasn't sure what he meant by that. <laughs> he turned too quickly, tipping his chair back on its hind legs and stormed off from the table. The chair wobbled a moment, righted itself. Because it was too awkward and confusing to meet each other's eyes, Madame Langlois and I stared at the space my father vacated like he'd vanished in a puff of smoke. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for that. Uh, deliciously awkward. That is such a good and passage. That passage <laughs> like that it's so good. It's like such a, you know, the dinner party I definitely want to read and don't want to go to. Um, that passage, a very good example of what can go wrong at a dinner party. People pretending to be something that they're not for the purposes of the party. It's kind of like a play with the audiences right there at the table and they're allowed to immediately critique. While at the same time, their criticism is often a way that they're playing a part. You're talking about the audience's criticism is a way that they're playing a part in the scene. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the people at yeah. the table are the audience, but then they become the actors when they start to say, well, you're lying, or this isn't true, or you disappointed yeah, yeah. me, you know? You know, Like a dinner party is an audience for each other, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I see what you're saying. Um, yeah, I, you know, this is maybe not right on point, but um, I always think like dinner scenes, uh, dinner party scenes in fiction they're a little bit like sex scenes, you know what I mean? And the fact that they are one, like like hard, difficult to write, uncomfortable to write, and they're often like uninteresting on their face. Like what's happening on the face of the scene is often not always that interesting. What's all what's interesting are all the tensions that are underneath the scene, like that are driving the characters to do and say things that have different meanings in the in the in the context of the scene uh, rather than the subtext of the scene. So um, yeah, I mean that's what that's what I love about a dinner party scene is all the tension that's not being said aloud, you know, and you can feel it pressing up against the bottom of the, you know, un, un, from, un, from underneath the scene. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. I think that's why ever this this scene with Trump's Nazi dinner at Mar-a-Lago, which is our news peg for this show, which happened a while ago, by the way. But still, the reason everyone became so fascinated in that is that actually there are there was a lot of stuff working underneath that dinner. Like one of the funniest things that's gotten lost in the whole Nick Fuentes part of it is that Kanye West went to Mar-a-Lago to ask Donald Trump to be his vice president. <laughs> Can you imagine? 
imagine how pissed off Trump must have been when he said that. I, I would love to have been at the table right then. I, I mean, I think There's like, all... sorry, Michael, go ahead. Oh, you go ahead. Sergey. Oh, no, I'm just going to say, I think that we don't, they didn't, they report what he didn't, they report his outrage. Did, was this in the, yeah, just the sort of like, yeah, the, the, the glorious presumption of it in all directions. You know, um, also like all the stories that I've read about that dinner are about how, about the presence of Nick Fuentes. There's also yeah. just the fact that a former U.S. president had dinner with Kanye. You know, I mean, Kanye gets plenty of anti-Semitic remarks out there in his own right without the help of Nick Fuentes. Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, when you asked me about this podcast, I started wondering sort of what they must have talked about. I mean, do you think that was it? Like Kanye asked Trump to be his vice president and that was the end of the dinner party? Or, or did they go on to, you know, topics such as Israel and immigration policy and, you know, fun well, topics such as this? they did definitely talk about, it appears that Nick Fuentes gave Trump advice about his speeches and said that his like renomination speech was bad and that he needed to go back to the old hard stuff. And that Trump kind of liked that better than what Kanye was saying, <laughs> you know? Do you all believe... Do you all believe that Trump didn't know who Nick Fuentes was during the day? I think he only knows, and he barely knows who he is himself. I don't think he has any clear recurring idea of other <laughs> characters in his own life. I do think Trump is one of those people at a dinner party who, ne- who you, people come up to all the time and say, hi, I knew you. And he just looks at them and he's like, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know you. I, but he doesn't think about really anyone other than the very big names. And Nick Fuentes, I don't know, maybe not a big enough name for him to have remembered. I don't know. What do you think, Michael? I don't know. I thought he see his uh, his his quote about um, can I say can I say a bad word on here? Especially if yes. I'm quoting someone. Um, Kanye fucked me or yay fucked me or whatever he said after the fact. You know, like like yes. that's that rang true to me. Like I think he was genuinely pissed that um, Ye had maneuvered this in order to screw him over. Um, so yeah, I, I think I don't think he knew who he was. And I do really love that they've given, they both like basically given press conferences on this dinner since the dinner happened. (laughs) People don't normally do that. That's also personally galling to me. Like, like the, you know, you check your news feed like the day after that happened and every news outlet has an article on this. It's like seven articles on this, that space in my brain is occupied by knowledge of this dinner party and wondering what they might've talked about and did Trump know, or did he not know? And also how disgusting it is, you know, the whole thing. Like, I'm galled by the fact that my brain has to be occupied with that stuff. Well, I think that the reason that that became such a huge story explains why Awkward Dinner Party is the Awkward Dinner Party is such a beloved conceit in fiction. You know, I mean, (laughs) fiction is all about masks and how others perceive those masks. And Trump and Yay and and Nick Fuentes are wearing different masks in that in that dinner and then and then parsing who was wearing what mask and why is has been a fascinating parlor game for all of America, unfortunately. Um, but we're going to now nominate. We we promised that we would talk about um, uh, dinner parties and literature. We've been we've been previewing this. We're going to have to do it right. So each person is going to nominate a dinner party scene from literature and explain why they love it. And Michael, you're the guest, so you get to go first. Damn. And I have to pick one? I can only pick one? No, you can pick as many as you want. Bring it on. Uh, and let me ask one more question. Are there any, like, how are we defining dinner party? Like, um, could a, like a wedding be a dinner party or? Um... Sure. Okay. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to reference two, and then I'm going to make my choice. I'm going I'm to give two honorable mentions, right? And then I'm going to make okay. my, my choice. That sounds excellent. So, um, 
even that's hard though. Uh, okay, so there's a short story called Bobcat by a writer named Rebecca Lee. That's great. Have you all ever read that story? It's a, it's a great it, collection. I have not. And also, I'm pretty sure that's the only, it's an unbelievably fine collection. And that whole story is a dinner party. Um, and what makes it great is what we've already talked about. There are, people are having affairs with other people and one character has written a novel in which another character doesn't appear well or in which the, you know his protagonist, who's a stand-in for him, is uh, sleeping with another woman who's at the dinner party who, uh, so he may have romantic aspirations toward her. And there's also this woman who keeps telling the story about being attacked by a bobcat in Nepal. It's just a train wreck of a dinner party and a great story and also staggeringly moving by the time you get to the end of it. Um, the the narrator and the, and the hostess of the party is pregnant. And so all this is also like bringing a life into this world is also present uh, in that story. So that's, I nominate Bobcat by Rebecca Lee. I also, like when I heard this theme, what came, uh, one of the things that came immediately into my head was um, all of James Salter's great dinner parties, particularly in the novel Light Years. And those aren't bad dinner parties. They're in fact quite beautiful dinner parties. What makes them effective as literature is we're watching these characters living a beautiful life that's going to be ruined. You know, that, that you know that these lives are going to come apart by the end. They have this great potential um, and, and all that's going to be lost. Um, but the one, the one that I would pick, uh, so do you remember the scene in Beloved when baby Suggs throws a dinner party for Setha's um, return? Setha finally arrives in Cincinnati and baby Suggs throws what is the, one of the greatest dinner parties of all times. There's like, they kill some chickens. There's catfish from the river. Stamp paid. It all gets started because Stamp paid has found all these blackberries in a bush down by the river. There's like watermelon on ice. And it's like the greatest dinner party of all times. Everyone who goes has a wonderful time. There's singing. There's dancing. And where it gets interesting is afterward. Whitney, you were talking about regrets after dinner parties. Yeah. Afterward. Everyone turns on baby Suggs because she was too generous, right? She did too much. Like, and, and I think that's like what I love about a good piece of fiction is it either, I don't know how to phrase this exactly. It either uh, fulfills our expectations of the scene in a way that's unexpected or it defies our expectations of the scene in a way that's convincing. Um, and that one just nails it. Like it's a great dinner party. It should leave a wonderful taste in everyone's mouth and everything goes to hell after the fact for reasons that are completely unexpected. So I, I, go, I go with Baby Suggs' dinner party after Setha returns, uh, after Setha makes her way to Cincinnati. All right, Sugi. Those are great, Michael. Thank you very much. Um, you're next, Well, um, I think like Michael, I have to mention a couple on my way to my eventual winner. And the ones that I would kind of mention... Uh, are classics, and that's why they're not actually winning my nomination because I think so many people already know them. I mean, throwing a Gatsby-style party is very classic, um, so much so that I think this is now some sort of minor industry. Um, and then, you know, in Anna Karenina, um, there's like a Blonsky's dinner party, and, and there's all the sort of careful pairing of like, oh, Kitty and Levin sitting next to each other. How's that going to go? Um, and then, of course, there's Virginia Woolf, um, Mrs. Dalloway being like Clarissa's a hostess after, yeah, oh, a hostess after course. my own part, uh, after my own heart. She knows she wants to buy the flowers herself. Like I want to make the curry myself. I want to do fucking everything myself, um, which makes it impossible for me to have any fun. Um, and I was just reading last night that there's like a related short story sequence that isn't Mrs. Dalloway, but that's like 
a bunch of stories related to the party um, that I want to go and go and read, but which I haven't read. Um, so that's an avenue I want to explore. But in the spirit of kind of keeping things fiction, nonfiction style political, uh, I think I want to nominate actually the dinner party in Asali Solomon's The Days of Afrikiti is my favorite recent dinner party because it's just wildly awkward and it's held for the narrator's husband when um, after he loses his campaign for office and and as his wife Lizelle is like planning this party, hosting this party, she knows, but like maybe no one else at the party knows that her husband is being investigated by the FBI. And so it's this this glorious subtext that enters into all of the conversation and the dinner party is a framing device for the whole novel. And of course, that novel is in part um, related to the structure of Wolf. Will you, would you mind saying the, the writer and the, I haven't read that novel. Will you say the writer and the, and the title again? Yeah, please? sure. This is Asali Solomon. Um, and the novel is called The Days of Afrikiti. Uh, and we did one of our earlier episodes of the years. Asali came on to talk about the January 6th investigation. So we did an episode with her where she talked about um, writing, writing parties. And yeah, The Days of Afrikiti is, yeah, it's a great book. And I'll, I'll send you a note about it later. What, what is your what's your nomination? I have one that's so much better than anything that you guys thought up. It's unbelievable. I'm going to win this easily. All right. Book seven of The Dark Tower from by Stephen King. The character Jake Chambers, who's one of the gunslingers Cotet and Father Callahan, who's helping him out, bust into the Dixie Pig, which is a vampire lounge in New, in New York City, which is feeding the customers roast human flesh and they lay waste to everyone in the dinner party. Although father Callahan dies in the process of killing all the people there. Um, that is the dinner party that reminds me most of Trump's dinner party. In <laughs> okay. It's filled with low men and vampires. That's what I imagined Mar-a-Lago to be. <laughs> that when reminds you- me of like, dude, did did either of you read Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe? It's been a long time, but yes. That does also have, um, yeah, there's a barbecue. For those who haven't read it, I'll just stop there. Uh, I totally was reminded that also, speaking of guests on the show, uh, there's a big dinner party in Sam Chang's uh, The Family Chow. It's a big, is a big important part of that book. And I also thought in the more literary terms of Ishiguro's Remains of the Day, which uh, in which the butler isn't attending the dinner parties, but there are constantly dinner parties going on. And in fact, there's one happening when his father dies, if I'm remembering the novel correctly. Um, and so I thought about that book as an interesting way of using dinner parties um, to create dramatic tension. That, yeah, that's right. I think you're right. It's been a long time since I've read that novel too, but doesn't the butler have to be sort of, he, he doesn't want to leave his post. Yeah. He wants his boss's party to go well and he doesn't want to leave to go check on his dad that's the whole tension is. that we were talking about earlier yeah. he's got that yeah. hosting thing you know and and that he <laughs> is sublimating himself to the party even to the extent of not being present for his father's death kind of amazing all right so uh, i don't i think I, I'll, I'll 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 grant you that remains of the day maybe wins this this vote but not stephen <laughs> king's book seven of the stand no We'll take a reader. We'll do a listener poll. It's the dark tower, <laughs> not the stand. The stand is a different yeah, kind of party. That's different. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but are there any other nominations that we're missing or classics that we've left out? Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are going to be ones that we left out. There's no way to do it without leaving out. I mean, the, we mentioned um, 
I'm going to read from Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse at the very end. So I'll just save that as a little nugget for what we can do. I looked up a part of nice passage from that dinner party that we can end on. Um, but uh, Sugi, you were going to ask, you wanted to talk about like the accoutrement of the party. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I'm curious, Michael, about how you think about, I mean, you talked a little bit about food. Um, what about music? What about dancing? What about drugs, alcohol, sex, drugs? Drugs, yes, I you say twice. sex, <laughs> yes. drugs. Uh, um, so, you know, my parties don't usually feature drugs. And, and, that you know, part is about the literature. There I'm asking about literature. Oh, literature. All right. I thought you were asking about my parties. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of if there's, I mean, there's writers like Jim Harrison who really focus on like, like the actual food, the actual consumption of food and wine and, and the sensual experience of that dinner is what makes the scene interesting. Um, are, are you thinking of somebody in particular? I mean, I guess I have personal favorites where there are these sort of great descriptions of the parties. Um, I don't know. Like, I mean, I think some of them are actually children's books. Like, if probably the, this is going to date me in terms of what I was reading when I was a kid. But the Redwall series, which was all about little animals in the forest, was coming out when I was a kid. And these animals were always having fantastic dinner parties and doing things like diving directly into the middle of Trifle, which, like, as a child was, like, my idea of a great time. There's Babette's um, Feast. Sounds like a fight. Yeah. Babette's Feast has a lot to do with food. I also just want to, I just thought of this, but what about the tea parties in Alice in Wonderland? Does that count? Does that count as a dinner party? The, that was, the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. I think that'd be pretty good. I think that that's, a, I mean, that's actually, a, that's a classic example. We've and then, shut Michael I mean, down by asking him about drugs at his parties, and he's got a very important... <laughs> I was like, I was, yeah, I was like, what? He can't comment anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so as we were talking, I was thinking, I mentioned Salter before, and I was trying to think of the name of this story. I think it might just be called Last Night, but um, the story where uh, a woman has cancer... And, she, and there's a dinner party to celebrate her last night on earth. She's going to uh, euthanize herself after the dinner party. And there's a lot of focus on the food and like, this is her last glass of this kind of wine. And this is, and the, the, I'm going to give, this is a you know, spoiler alert readers, but the, the twist is it doesn't work. She wakes up the next morning and she's, and she's still alive and it hasn't worked. And um, her husband is still at home with his mistress. It's a terrible, terrible, it's maybe the worst dinner party of all times. Um, yeah, that's a, that's that one came to mind. I haven't read that story. We'll link to it though um, in the show notes. I think it might be called Last Night. It might be the title story in his in his last collection. And so, what do you do? This is our last question, so we're gonna have to wrap up. Uh, but what do you do if either of you are hosting a party? If so, if like someone at Mar-a-Lago, you have an unexpected asshole guest, and then you're ex- and you accepting them makes news or gets you in trouble in some way. There's the party and then there's page six. Do you have nominations for favorite awkward party guest in literature? Have you yourself ever been caught with an awkward guest at a party? Uh, I have been the awkward guest at a party before. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I, don't think I, I don't think I should tell that story. Uh-oh. I hate to say it, but on the, uh, on the podcast. But uh, I have been the awkward guest at a party before, like the uninvited person who showed up and um, the hosts were not glad to see me visibly and so they they were mad they were angry they they treated me they were they were so gracious that it it was uncomfortable but they were visibly mad at the person who had brought me to the party um yeah i mean and it it, yeah it made it very uncomfortable for me as well um so yeah i've been the awkward guest i guess thinking about it in literature maybe this takes me back to my (laughs) back to my drugs question um but i just thinking about right like one of the i'm always 
I feel like I'm both interested in and cautious about writing characters in altered states, both because I think I'm bad at it and because I think it's just hard to pull off. But a party, I don't know, like Jesus' son, like they're just all these, right? Like, I mean, I think that's actually probably the book I was thinking of when I was just kind of like, or, you know, there's, I think, aren't there, Whitney, you probably know this better than me, but like, aren't there some great parties in Pinchon or like, there's, there's all of these, these. (laughs) The one dinner party that I wasn't going to bring up was the. The, the f- former World oh, War I general who eats poop that this uh, German agent feeds to him. That seems like an odd dinner party. Do you want me to bring Now I brought it up because you asked. That's in Gravity's Rainbow. I didn't remember the specifics. <laughs> Go ahead, Michael. Um, so uh, I thought of one while y'all were talking. So there's a great scene. I'm going to might get this uh, slightly wrong because I haven't read this book in a long time. But you remember the scene in The Sun Also Rises? So Jake meets a prostitute on his way to meet some friends with dinner and invites the prostitute to the dinner party. And it's, it's great because she's having a good time and everyone is politely trying to pretend that Jake hasn't brought a, a prostitute to their dinner party. And then there's also that other layer of like Jake being unable to be with a prostitute. He's, he's impotent, right? So we know all along that, that it's, um, yeah, and that there's one. There's an awkward guest at a party. Um, Hemingway's pretty good at awkward yeah. guests. Hemingway himself probably was an awkward guest at more than a few Many, parties. many times, yeah. <laughs> All right, I want to read one. This is the last part. <laughs> to send us off, it's a, it's a portrait of a beautiful party that does actually work, and it is from To the Lighthouse. Um, so I'll read this, and then we're going to say goodbye to Michael. Now all the candles were lit up and the faces on both sides of the table were brought nearer by the candlelight and composed as they had not been in the twilight into a party round a table. For the night was now shut off by panes of glass, which far from giving any accurate view of the outside world rippled it so strangely that here inside the room seemed to be order and dry land. There outside a reflection in which things wavered and vanished waterily. Some change at once went through them all, as if this had really happened, and they were all conscious of making a party together in a hollow on an island, had their common cause against that fluidity out there. That's so fucking great. It makes me feel so terrible about what I wrote today, because it was not that good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, please go check out The Holiday Season and all of Michael's excellent novels and short story collections. They will make for great topics of discussion at your next dinner party. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. It's been such so much fun. It's nice to meet you, Sugi. Whitney, it's great to see you again. I hope we get to do it in person before too long. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!